Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Doesn't it seem like we're in a strange time in history involving the use of service animals and emotional support animals? And what I mean is so many people want a non-human animal to accompany them wherever they go and to provide a whole host of alleged positive benefits The regulatory system is completely in flux. People are abusing their privileges. There are fake service vests, and definitely the system is being abused by people who just want to take their mini dog or whatever they have into restaurants and on planes and really anywhere. There was even a story in the news last year, and we talked about this on the show, of a woman who brought her emotional support pig onto an airliner. Well, that didn't last too long, and fortunately, the pig and the pig's owner were escorted off the plane before it took off. But let's get real. What is the current status of service and emotional support animals, and which professionals should be permitted to issue permits for their use? I want to welcome Dr. Jeffrey Youngren, clinical and forensic psychologist at the University of Missouri. Welcome to the program, Dr. Youngren. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Jeff, define emotional support animals and contrast that to service animals. Well, under the law, they're distinctly different. Let's start with the service animal. Service animal almost always has to be a dog. There are some cases where uh, a horse, a miniature horse has been certified, but a service animal has to be a dog. It's not a pet, and it must be formally trained to provide a function. When an animal is certified as a service animal, it really has full access with the owner to various places because it's necessary to address the disability. An emotional support animal is an interesting uh, creature under the law. The Department of Transportation and uh, the uh, Fair Housing Act individuals have defined this as an animal that is needed by the owner to ameliorate, for lack of a better term, a formal psychological disability. So uh the the animal is uh the presence of the animal is necessary to help the owner with whatever the emotional struggles uh that individual is having uh, under department of transportation the animal flies with the owner and under the housing act the animal can be present in the, the housing and actually can be present without any fees attached to it for damages for the animal. What certifications, if any, are currently needed to use service animals or emotional support animals? Our focus really is on the emotional support animal, uh, and uh, we really began our research kind of trying to get an understanding of this industry that sprung up uh, certifying these animals. And when we analyzed the law, it became clear to us that Uh, These need to be formal disability determinations to help the individual with their emotional problem, and the animal is supposed to be able to do that. It's problematic for two reasons, one of which is the research that exists uh, for emotional support animals is spotty in terms of whether they really do anything. It doesn't mean that someone doesn't enjoy being with their pet. I enjoyed my dog and I enjoy being with my animal. That's not it. The, the research doesn't really support clearly that the animal does do something with the, the psychological disability that has to be diagnosed by the individual providing the certification. Uh, so the certification really basically is a disability determination that says that the individual needs the animal. And what rules govern the use of 
emotional support animals in places such as planes, restaurants, and classrooms? The rules do not apply to restaurants or classrooms. The emotional support animal rules apply to transportation and housing. Uh, so because someone has a certification for an emotional support animal doesn't mean they're allowed to go into public places that animals aren't allowed in or restaurants. It's a, it's a significant misinterpretation of the law. But, of course, the people in the restaurants and, and the teachers, they don't know what the law is. Individuals actually misuse the certification. It's very clear the certification is limited to transportation and housing. And in the housing, the animal needs to be in the housing. It doesn't mean they have access to the recreation room in the, in the apartment or any other area in the apartment. They are limited to the owner's uh, apartment. Uh, and so it, it, uh, it becomes a real problem when people are taking these animals into a variety of uh, settings that really the law doesn't uh, doesn't allow them to go into. Now, there's a review committee to evaluate the Department of Transportation regulations, I believe scheduled for next week. Can you explain what that is and what happens there? The airlines have really been burdened with these uh, animals traveling and have been struggling with uh, spiders and snakes and potbelly pigs and ducks and turkeys that have all been certified as emotional support animals. So, this has kind of catalyzed a review of the Department of Transportation regulations regarding this. And there is a suggested proposal that these be revised to narrow down the definitions of emotional support animals and, frankly, to end the abuse of this. There are many companies that do disability inter- determinations online. I believe that's a standards of care violation. I don't know how you would evaluate someone's psychological disability in the form of a questionnaire in the first place. But lots and lots of these certifications exist. And that has kind of forced a formal review of the regulations, which will not change. They'll come up for comment and probably won't change until next year if they change at all. Now, you and your colleagues expressed an opinion as to who should write authorizations for emotional support animals. And I think our listeners would find it interesting that you feel that treating psychologists should not be writing them. Please explain. It's because the writing of the letter has nothing to do with therapy. And therapy is a relationship of advocacy and treatment. Therapists are very much an advocate for for their patients. And uh, this creates a kind of a boundary crossing where you're engaging in a certification, uh, uh, providing a service to the client that really is, one, forensic and administrative in nature, and two, could potentially become a problem in the therapy. We suggest that treating therapists just tell their patients that we don't, I don't write those letters and you need to get that written by someone who will do a formal evaluation, which is a complex procedure, uh, to, to determine whether it is appropriate for you to be with the animal or not. Um, so we believe that it is a boundary crossing. We believe that it raises ethical questions about whether the therapist should even be doing this. And we also believe that most of the treating therapists have never really done the disability evaluation that is required uh, for the determination. What can we anticipate next in this area? I think we're going to see uh, a clearer definition of what is required for uh, an emotional support animal to travel and be in housing. I think there are people who undoubtedly do need these animals. We don't really know who that is from an empirical perspective, but I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm, I am sure that there is a population of individuals who have emotional struggles 
and they find that the presence of the animal ameliorates that or addresses those troubles, fine. Those individuals probably need that. But everybody else that just wants to travel with their dog or, you know, is seeing a therapist that wants certification, I think we're going to see an end to that. Um, and we're going to see an end to the burden on the airlines of probably transporting, transporting excuse me, unusual pets like well, as I went down the list, we know spiders, ducks, turkeys, snakes, pot-bellied pigs. And we, these have all been certified formally by a mental health professional <laughs> as emotional support animals. And they raise all kinds of questions about other passengers' rights um, to be uh, around that and, uh, and so forth. So I think we will see a clear definition of what is required for the certification and a narrowing of the group of individuals who will qualify for that. Very interesting topic. Forensic psychologist Dr. Jeffrey Youngren, thank you very, very much. It's my pleasure. So I want to tell you, I did a little research to see how easy it might be to get your dog or cat or whatever animal you might have to be certified as an emotional support animal. And I'll tell you, it's pretty darn easy. But before I go into that, I think a lot of people incorrectly use the term service animal when they're referring to an emotional support animal. Okay, so I know Dr. Youngren explained the difference, but I'll just remind us of what each of these are. Okay, service animal helps perform some function for a person who has some disability, right? Like a visual impairment or a hearing impairment or has seizures. An emotional support animal provides comfort for individuals with emotional problems. Example, someone with anxiety or depression or has panic attacks. So I went online. I could have spent 10 minutes filling out a form and paying as little as $69, and I would have been able to get a lifetime registration and a certificate and an ID card for any one of my dogs to be certified as an emotional support dog or service dog. Now, you really do need a doctor's note to, quote, legally have an emotional support dog, but you don't need to submit that online in order to register your dog and get your ID kit or vest or card or whatever. You can get your therapist to write you a note because to go on a plane with your dog or go into a housing complex that says no dogs allowed with your dog, the airlines or the landlord will probably want to see a note from a therapist. But guess what? If your therapist won't write you a note or you don't have a therapist, you can get a licensed psychotherapist online to write you one for a small fee. For example, one of these websites states, in part, our licensed mental health professionals have written hundreds of prescriptive letters and we're proud to say that none of our clients have ever had an accommodation refused. If the therapist determines that, that you qualify for an emotional support animal prescriptive letter, it will be emailed to you that same day. We are so confident the prescriptive letter you receive will be accepted by any domestic airline, landlord, or housing management agent. Your fee will be refunded in full if your requested accommodation is denied. Now, we've got to take a break, but let me give you something to think about here. So say I claim to have a fear of flying, which, by the way, I do hate to fly. By paying a relatively small fee, I can get one of my cats certified as an emotional support cat, bring them with me next time I fly, sit next to a person who might be very allergic to cats, but that doesn't matter. As long as I am now at ease and comforted by my emotional support cat on my lap, that's what matters. And it doesn't matter that the person next to me could potentially be suffering and uncomfortable, sneezing, coughing, choking, watering eyes, the entire flight, by me and my cat sitting next to him or her. Wouldn't you think that person has rights? Interesting, huh? And yet, I'm strip searched to make sure I don't bring a bag of peanuts on the plane because someone 10 rows back might be allergic to peanuts. And one of my peanuts might accidentally fall out of my bag and land into the person's mouth. 
For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to the show. There's a new survey just released about the Swimming with Dolphins program in, of all places, Arizona. Uh, this follows the opening of a new dolphinarium in Scottsdale, and here to tell us about what's going on is Dr. Naomi Rose, marine mammal scientist at Animal Welfare Institute. Hey, Dr. Rose. Hi, how are you? Okay, so there's this uh, new survey out. Who commissioned this survey, and what's the... We what's did. The, uh-huh. um, there are two local groups in Arizona and the Animal Welfare Institute. Uh, we worked together to um, commission this, this poll. Okay, and what, uh, why'd you do it? Well, whenever um, we try to determine, you know, what's going on with a new facility like this, you know, you want to get a sense of where the public stands on it. And we could say, you know, oh, the public opposes it, and Dolphinaris would then turn around and say, oh, no, no, they support it. So we work with independent um, polling companies to conduct these sorts of polls whenever we're interested in trying to get to the truth of the matter. Okay, so what's Dolphinaris? Dolphin Aris is the facility in Arizona. It's a company that owns it. It's actually Mexican-based. Um, it's uh, based in Mexico, and it's expanding into the United States. And the one in Arizona has just opened? Oh, yes, just opened. October 15th, I believe, was the grand opening. Uh-huh. Are there whales in this one? No, no. This is just basically a swim with the dolphin program. Mm-hmm. So these are bottlenose dolphins, and um, I believe there's eight of them, if I have that correct. What was asked in the survey, and what did you find? So it was a very straightforward, brief survey. It basically asked, you know, are you aware, or well, you know, as you may know, I can actually read these to you if you want me to, but it just said, you know, if you, you know, as you may know, there's a new facility in Scottsdale, and you can swim with the dolphins there. Um, and in general, do you strongly support, somewhat support, somewhat oppose, or strongly oppose mm-hmm. having dolphins held in tanks for this purpose? And what we d- determined was that 49% of the public is opposed to holding dolphins for swim with purposes, mm-hmm. which was a big shift. I've been doing this for 23 years. This is a big shift from what it used to be. Swimming with dolphins is like a lot of people's, you know, sort of bucket list activity. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, everybody just assumes that the dolphins want to be with people as much as people want to be with the dolphins. That's a charming thought, but it's it's kind of um, if you give it any thought, if you give it some really logical thought, unlikely. <laughs> so, um, in fact, we've been working very hard to educate the public about this, and I think we're finally seeing some shift in the public opinion about this. So 49% were opposed to keeping dolphins for swim with purposes, and only 32% supported it, and the, re- the rest, 19%, are undecided. So um, I think that we are finally getting a shift here. Believe me, 20 years ago when I started all of this, it was the other way around. Mm. Well, well, congratulations. Another element that I read in the release has to do with who is the decision maker in whether to visit. Yeah. 
Tell us about that. From the perspective of Dolphinaris, from the perspective of the facility, I think they ought to care about this. 55% of women 25 to 45, that's, you know, mom. Yeah. <laughs> She's the one, you know, the, the wife, the mother of a family, you know, often makes these sorts of decisions. Where are we going to go on vacation? What are we going to do? Um, and, and in that sense, 55% of that age group and that gender are opposed to these activities, mm-hmm. this activity. 55% are, are opposed to it, and 30% are strongly opposed to it. A third of women of that age group, mom, are strongly opposed to swimming with dolphins, mm. you know, in, in these concrete tanks in the middle of the desert. Yeah. So it's um, definitely something I would think dolphin areas should care about. Give us a little broader view. Why does the Animal Welfare Institute, or you personally, op- oppose these sorts of things? So I'm a marine mammal biologist. I'm actually a dolphin biologist. Uh, um, my specialty um, is in orcas. I'm, I used to spend a lot of time out in the, in the wild with those guys. Mm-hmm. But I'm also, you know, well-versed in, in all things cetacean. And I have to tell you, of all the species out there, they are at the top of the list of wildlife that simply cannot adjust, simply cannot thrive in concrete tanks. And so we oppose this activity, we oppose the public display, the captive display of all whales and dolphins everywhere. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to building a brand new facility in the middle of the desert, I, you know, I just can't begin to tell you how inappropriate that is. You know, dolphin heirs will tell you, oh, you know, we, we're bringing the dolphins to the desert because otherwise people who live here can't know anything about them. Well, one, of course, people can learn all sorts of ways these days, Yep. you know. There's technology that brings dolphins right into your living room, for heaven's sakes. You know, I don't think you need to see the living thing anymore to appreciate it and learn about it. But the idea of bringing the dolphins to the desert because people have some sort of right to see them there is a little old-fashioned, I think. And quite frankly, I again, I'm not really sure, you know, how anybody could think putting a multi-million gallon hole in the ground full of water that has to be salinated Mm -hmm. because that's what dolphins need um, in a region that has water shortage problems um, is a good idea. This notion that uh, you need to be in contact or actual physical, physically near the animal to learn anything and that what you learn actually will help animals elsewhere is pervasive in the whole field. I think it's... um, waning. Mm, you know, good. it used to be the conventional wisdom, I agree with you, but I think we're shifting in that regard. And it's simply because historically, you know, everybody thought, well, you know, zoos and aquariums do good work and sure they, you know, w- we need to see them and 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 be near them to to appreciate them and learn to love them. If that is what is required for people to help wildlife in nature, then there's an awful lot of species that are not held in captivity that are doomed. Yeah. And I don't think they are doomed. I think people, for example, love whales, don't they? They love humpback whales and the songs they sing. They love the whole romance of sperm whales and Moby Dick and all of that. Neither of those species has ever been held in captivity. Yes. <laughs> and most people have never seen them in the flesh right. unless they've gone whale watching. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that people love them and appreciate them and want to help them clearly doesn't require the living animal to to invoke. So I, I would disagree with that on its face. It's just clearly not true. Any final words for our people who want to end this practice? 
Well, I, you know, I really have always pointed out to people that they should try to see this from the dolphin's point of view. So what we have here are eight dolphins in a 10-foot deep swimming pool, just like the kind you have at a hotel, filled with fresh water that's been artificially salinated, swimming around in the hot desert sun. And they are, in fact, swimming around in the hot desert sun because there's very little shade at this facility. And they're there to amuse you. They're there to entertain you. And that's their life, mm-hmm. 24-7. You get to go home at night. They'll never see home again. And I really hope that people can try to appreciate, you know, that kind of future for these poor animals that are now stuck in this box. Well, thank you for that graphic concluding thought, Dr. Naomi Rose, Animal Welfare Institute. We appreciate you coming on Animals Today. Thank you. It's Dr. Lori from Animals Today Radio, and here is your Animals Today fun fact for today. Do you ever wonder why your cat bumps their head against you? Well, that unexpected butting of her head is known as head bunting, and this is your kitty's way of bonding with you. She is identifying you as one of her friends, and head bunting is her way of sharing her love and affection. And this is your Animals Today fun fact for today. back to animals today. You know, one of the tough things about having pets in families, especially dogs and cats, is that their lifespans are just too short. Of course, if you have a tortoise or an exotic bird, there's a good chance they're going to outlive you. So you have to make sure you plan for that likelihood. But isn't it hard saying goodbye to our cherished companion animals, our dogs and cats. Peter and I have done it many times, and I'm sure we'll do it many more times in the future. And of course, it's never easy. A few years ago, we had an especially tough week. We had to say goodbye to two of our dogs in the same week. Boy, I'll tell you, that was hard to get through. But how about getting children and teens through the grieving process? Families have to navigate this all the time. So what can we do to make this event easier and more meaningful to our kids? To talk about this, I'm pleased to welcome Colleen Ellis of the Pet Loss Center. Colleen is a nationally recognized expert in pet bereavement. Welcome to the program, Colleen. Hi, how are you? Thank you so much. What an honor to be with you. Thank you. Colleen, how is the grieving process over the loss of a pet different in teens and children compared to adults? You know, I don't know that it's different. I think that what we do as adults is going to give the the children the permission and teenagers the permission to do what they need to do because every child and every teenager is going to want to do the grieving and honoring of the pet and the life they shared in their own unique way. What a lot of times happens, though, Dr. Lori, is that we as adults are the barometer for how children will think that they should handle death or not handle death. And so if they look to us and we choose to push it down or we choose to minimize it or we choose not to show emotion, then they'll think that's how they should do it too. And what I'd really like to talk about here in the next few minutes that we're going to be together is how can we as adults be a barometer, a very healthy barometer that gives the child the guidance and the permission and the the venue and the safety to express themselves in the way that's probably 
the healthiest way that they can do it. So let's say a dog, a cat, or a companion animal, whatever it is, is very old or sick, and the family is anticipating his or her death. What are some helpful things families can do to prepare children at different maturity levels for the passing of that animal? You know, I think there's one thing that that I would recommend, regardless of what the age is, and it would begin to it would be to begin to have those conversations that say, listen, you know, Fido is getting old, and and whether it's the reading, of, there's many many books out there, and the reading of a book, whether it's The Fall of Freddie the Least by Mr. Rogers, beautiful book yeah. that talks about death and and life cycle and things like that, or even another book that I like to recommend, which is Dog Heaven or Cat Heaven by Cynthia Ryland. All of those are wonderful, wonderful books to begin to open the conversation about death and old age and life and this one thing that happens at the end of life, and that is death. And so it's to begin to have those conversations, and it's begin to begin to have open conversations about it, not to hide it, not to push it away, not to make it this taboo topic that nobody brings up because we're all fearful of how we're going to have emotions or we might cry or whatever it may be. Let's be open with those conversations. Help the child as we approach that end-of-life walk with things like maybe making their own their own personal scrapbook or maybe it's making that one little stone, that little walking stone that can go outside and they get an opportunity to do some paw print art where we can take the doggy or the kitty or the bird or whatever it may be and we can put their little their little handprint, their little claw print, their little paw print right into that. And, and we can always say that, you know, as the days go on that we look back and we remember that day that we all got to do that as a family. Sitting down and as I always like to talk with the children, you know, and, and, and acknowledging all the, the nicknames that we had. Why, do, why did we have that nickname for him? So it's just being very open as we approach the end of life walk and doing some of those things that honor the life we shared together, and that, again, are a very, very open dialogue to that to that thing that we're getting ready to face. And let's have an open conversation, and let's educate them, much like we do about anything else, from sex to whatever it may be with the children. Let's have that open dialogue about life as well. Great advice. How about following the loss of a pet? How can parents and other family members help children and teens grieve? The first thing that I always tell parents is give the children, the child, the teenager, whatever it may be, give them the opportunity to say goodbye to their friend. I could sit here for hours and tell you stories about children that I've had, had their, their parents have brought them into me, and I was able to have that very beautiful dialogue with them about what's just happened to their friend, their confidant, however they see the animal in their world. And we had a very beautiful conversation about what's just happened. Children are very organic in how they grieve and how they mourn. We're the ones, we as adults are the ones that think we do it right because we have life experiences. Well, you know what? Kids do it right. They're organic. And children, how they grieve is that they will dose themselves. And so they'll go in, they'll grieve, they'll cry, they'll mourn, and then they'll remove themselves from the situation and they'll go take a break. And then they'll go back in and they'll do it again. Well, we as adults perceive that to be disrespectful as we're spending those last few moments and saying goodbye or at a ritual service or whatever it might be. That's actually the perfect way to do it. So number one, let them say goodbye. Give them that opportunity. Now, that's as opposed to being a part of the euthanasia process. I always say that parents know their children best as far as their maturity level. That's a decision that they should make. But outside of the euthanasia process, and now we have a precious deceased little beloved pet in front of us, Give them the opportunity to say goodbye. Number two, give them the opportunity for a ritual or a service. 
Number three, allow them to be involved in the final arrangement process, whether it's cremation or burial. And number four, allow them to also be a part of if we're going to bury, what will, what will that process look like? Or if we're going to cremate, what might an urn look like? What are some of those things that we can do um, in, in the personalization of all those pieces? Allow them to be a part of the process. Colleen, are there any pitfalls in helping kids and teens get through this mourning process? Or can you identify any potential mistakes families might make in this process? I think one of the things, and I'm just going to say it again, give them the opportunity to say goodbye. I know every time I, and I always start that conversation off with, I want to, I want to give you, as a parent, I want to give you my personal and my professional opinion on your child being involved with this. And I know personally that we can all talk about those times that maybe our parents told us that the dog went to the farm or the cat ran off or whatever it may be, when yeah. in all actuality there was probably a trip to the vet that they weren't upfront with us about. And let's be upfront about that. Professionally, this is a healthy way to have this conversation. And so with, with parents, many a times when I bring that conversation up about allowing their, their child to say goodbye, the first thing they'll say to me, believe it or not, is, oh, but what if they cry? But they'll be upset. Well, you know what? Of course they will. They just experienced a loss. They have the death of a, of a friend for them, you know, or a confidant, or again, whatever relationship they had with the animal. Of course they're going to be sad. We as parents shouldn't try to always shield them from sadness or, or some of the feelings that are going to be associated with grief. Let's talk about it. Let's be open with it. And so if there's Something I can recommend. I don't say it's a pitfall. I don't say it's a mistake. I say it's a different way to look at it into allowing a child to experience these emotions. Colleen, any final comments or advice for my listeners? Dr. Lori, I guess if I really had to, to reach into my heart, what I would tell all the listeners out there is you, ha you have the right to ask questions when you're approaching that end-of-life walk with a beloved pet. You have the right to ask questions about what's going to happen after and the, and the services and the support that you need, not only as a grieving pet parent, but also possibly even as a parent of children. Ask for those resources. Ask for the help because a lot of times we as pet parents are trying to maneuver the own waters of our, our own waters of grief. And then if we've got children that we've got to help as well, it gets overwhelming. Ask for help, whether it's through your veterinarian and their pet loss provider that they're working with, or reach out and do some research right there in your own community and say, who's got some children re children's resources that I can turn to that can help them and then possibly help me as well. Colleen Ellis of the Pet Loss Center, thank you very much. Thank you so much for helping to get the word out on this very important topic. Lori, that was uh, really fascinating to me, and not having human children of our own, we really haven't had to uh, usher or bring a child through this process, have we? But it's certainly a big issue, and you can, even though I think she was being sort of kind, you could definitely make mistakes along the way, I would say. And I really liked uh, her advice about you need to sort of be a barometer, because your kids are going to look and see how you react and sort of... Uh, model. Right. And a couple of the specific ideas that, that I really liked were just bringing a, a book into it beforehand. Okay, your dog's now 13 years old. It's going to happen sooner or later. Get one of these uh, wonderful books and start, you know, paging through it in a non-threatening manner, in a, in a time that it's not really emotionally intense. And just get them used to the idea this is cycle of life, right? This is uh, dying is the end of living, and that's just how it is. Or start a scrapbook, 
that's really a concrete, wonderful thing. And I really, really like the idea of the paw print, right? Making a little sort of memory impression of your of your animal while alive, right? And I don't know if any of our dogs would really go for that. Maybe one of our dogs would do it. The others would sort of make a mess. And if we had a bird, I don't know how that works with birds. But still, the idea, I think, is is really, really sweet. And then it's creates a memory that you can look, a good memory you can look back to. So I really uh, love that idea. And you wouldn't want your kids growing up resenting you for something you did do or didn't do when they lost their best friend when they were younger, right? You bet. Yeah, a little planning ahead will really go a long way. And just as a reminder, some of her three main points after the passing of the animal, that you need to give the kids a chance to say goodbye. You really need to give them a proper opportunity. Let them participate in a ritual such as a service, right? And then also in the final arrangements, let them see it and participate and sort of figure out what you're going to do with that. And that will really make it an easier transition. And let them cry if they want to cry. She mentioned a mistake. Well, she didn't want to call it a mistake, but parents don't want to tell their kids of the passing of an animal because they don't want to see them cry. Yeah. Yeah. And let them cry. And I found it interesting the way she described how they want to sort of do it in doses, right? Come in, cry a little bit, go away, and then sort of revisit it. That's interesting behavior. Okay, more with animals today, right after the break. I'm Bob DeRigo Jones, and this is Let's Be Fair. A monkey, an animal rights organization, and a primatologist walk into a federal court to sue for infringement of the monkey's claimed copyright. Sounds like a joke, right? But it's actually a line from a real court document filed by a lawyer for a photographer who was sued last year by the group People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. To make a long story short, a monkey in Indonesia took a picture of himself using a camera that a nature photographer had left unattended. It was hilarious, and the monkey's selfie went viral. Unfortunately, that's when the real monkey business started, and PETA sued the photographer. It claimed that the monkey, not him, should get any money generated by the photo. Let's be fair. I know our legal system sometimes seems like it's gone bananas, but I'm happy to say that a federal judge has just issued a tentative ruling upholding common sense. He says that a monkey can't own a copyright. PETA, however, pledges to keep fighting. Learn more. Visit our website at centerforamericatv.org. Welcome back to the show. I want to share with you an issue we're dealing with with our new rescue dog. And I know this is a common problem many of you probably have dealt with. Skye is about a year old and she's a 40-pound, we think, pit bull mix who's very energetic and playful. But she likes to eat almost anything that she can get into her mouth. For instance, when we go on walks with the leash, if given the chance, she will eat or at least try to eat dates or olives that fall from the trees in our neighborhood, leaves on the ground, bits of plastic, and even the occasional pebble. Consequently, we really have to be vigilant on these walks, and we give her a good tug on the leash if it looks like she's going to eat something. And not infrequently, she does get one of these objects in her mouth, and we quickly reach in her mouth to extract it before she swallows it. But what we want to talk about in this segment is another hazard of having young dogs, particularly if you allow them to spend time outside in your yard without supervision. I want to welcome veterinarian Dr. Robert Reed, who is here to tell us about what he calls the backyard smorgasbord. 
Hey, Robert. Hi, Laura. It's great to talk to you. Robert, unsupervised dogs can get into trouble even in our own yard, can't they? Oh, yeah, yeah. There there are a few things. There are fortunately not many that are dangerous, but there are a few things to remember that you at least want to be aware of. If they're in your yard, your dog's going to find them. You want to make sure that there's nothing that's going to do him or her any harm. Our dog, Sky, likes to catch moths and eat them. Are insects and other bugs harmful to our dogs? You know, insects are one of the low-risk things a dog can get into. You know, you do occasionally see a dog who uh, who actually eat a bee. Uh, sometimes bees can be found on the ground if they're a little bit uh, debilitated, and that's probably the most common area for stings in dogs. Um, scorpions would be the same thing, but less common than bees. I certainly worry about spiders, but that's particularly important with cats. If it's a toxic spider like um, a black widow, for instance, And, you know, even more mundane insects like crickets and roaches can sometimes be sources of stomach worms uh, or the parasites. So, you know, a few low-risk things, uh, nothing particularly life-threatening if you, um, you know, if you roll out the uh, black widow and uh, cat relationship. We had a tarantula in our backyard a few days ago. Could that harm a dog? You know, tarantulas, uh, fortunately, even though they're dramatic in appearance, are low in toxicity and would be unlikely to do any significant harm. We live here in the desert, and we come across scorpions not too infrequently. Do dogs know to stay away from scorpions, or do they want to eat them or kill them? No, it's uh, it's a good question. I think dogs generally stay away from scorpions, and they're much less likely to eat them than they are bees, in my experience. But I don't think you'd really be able to tell the difference, to be honest. Um, you know, a bee sting and a scorpion sting, in that sense, They'll be very similar. Neither is likely to be life-threatening unless there's an allergic reaction involved. So it's possible that they are eating them and we're not aware of it. Um, But I do believe that given the number of scorpions that we have in our area, that we see a low number of of scorpion stings. Robert, how about grass? Our dogs like to eat grass on occasion. You know, you're not alone. That's one of the more common things that dogs will uh, decide they want to chew on or eat in the backyard. You know, uh, I think you should remember always that there are some plants, not necessarily grasses, that can be found in the backyard that could be toxic to varying degrees. And you should always know what kind of plants are in your yard and if they have that potential. But as far as grasses go, I think most behaviors would agree that it's a fairly normal behavior for most dogs to just want to chew and consume grass to varying degrees. Uh, I think moderation is the thing to remember here. A little bit of grass is really not going to do any harm. I know of some cases where dogs have eaten so much grass that they get a mat of knotted grass in their stomach or their intestine that actually has to be removed surgically. But for the most part, you know, a little vomiting is probably all you're going to see. And in fact, that's not very uncommon for a dog to vomit after they eat grass. But the intent is not always clear. In other words, dogs vomit when they eat grass, but they don't necessarily eat grass because they want to vomit. And what plants should we be aware of? It depends on where you are in the country. In our area, in Southern California, the plants that we worry most about are sago palm and oleander. But in other parts of the country, you you might worry about rhododendron, azalea, foxgloves, Japanese yew. These are all potentially found in backyards. And then, of course, for cats, lilies are always a risk, but only for cats. Robert, talk about this habit that some dogs have, not ours, of eating other dogs' feces. I mean, being super gross here, but can this be dangerous? Well, 
You're lucky your dog doesn't have that problem. I have a dog who does have that problem. Unfortunately, it's really not a big danger. It's unpleasant for most of us, but it's not a big danger. I think there are a few things to remember uh, that, uh, you know, things that dogs could pick up in the stool, viruses, bacteria, and most importantly, parasites. And remember also that if your dog is eating his or her own stool, the chance of any problem is really unlikely unless they're reinfecting themselves with a parasite like Giardia that you're trying to get rid of. But if a dog is only eating their own stool, it's really not a big deal. If they're out and about or eating another dog's stool whose health you don't really know anything about, that has some potential uh, for infectious agents, and you want to be aware of that and always try to prevent it. Uh, but it's not as big a deal as you would think just because of the disgusting nature of the habit. How about mushrooms that we sometimes see growing at certain times of the year? Mushrooms are a bit of a wild card. I would say probably 95% of mushrooms are not toxic, but unfortunately the, the ones that are can be extremely toxic, and it's very hard to know which ones are, are which. So I always suggest that people know if the mushrooms are, are popping up in your yard. It can vary from the time of the year. Um, you may see them more only after a rainstorm. But you should always be aware if you have mushrooms in your yard and try to keep your dogs from eating them, if at all possible. And if they do and you're not sure if they're toxic, which is often the case, then you really should seek veterinary attention to have them removed from the dog's stomach because you just don't know and it's really hard to identify toxic mushrooms versus non-toxic mushrooms. So as a general rule, I say just don't let your dog eat mushrooms. Any other backyard hazards we should be aware of? You know, one of the ones that's often overlooked, and it's more important in certain parts of the country than in others, um, is toads. Toads are found in a lot of people's backyards, again, sometimes seasonally, sometimes only after a rain, whenever there's moisture present. But there are a couple of species of toads that are found in the United States that are actually very toxic, in fact, dangerous for dogs if they just pick them up and absorb the toxins into their mouth. Uh, Those are found, uh, there's two species. There's the Colorado River toad, which is in Arizona, and bits of California, New Mexico. And there's the cane toad, which is found in Florida, Hawaii, and in South Texas that are very dangerous. If you're in one of those areas, you should be aware of those. Um, The other toads, some of the more common toads that have a wider distribution, are irritating to dogs if they pick them up and get them in their mouths, maybe some drooling or vomiting, but not life-threatening. In any case, if you have toads that come come into your yard, then it's probably worth being aware of and taking precautions to make sure your dog isn't eating or at least playing with them. Veterinarian Dr. Robert Reed, thank you. You're welcome. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Animals.